In our summer teaching series, Arrow Prayers, we're exploring intense prayers by people of faith from the New Testament and the Old, women and men, leaders and followers, believers, and even one unbeliever. Arrow prayers are short, simple prayers, a few words, a sentence or less, that keeps us on target, focusing faith and sharpening our awareness of God. And at the core of arrow prayers is the conviction that it is better to pray at all times than to pray just at certain times. And we reach into our quiver for an arrow prayer in times of faith or fear, in the midst of struggle or overwhelmed by God's goodness. Now, this season has pushed us all out of our comfort zones, but that can be a good thing because growth doesn't happen there. It's between rocks and hard places and in the storms, valleys, and peaks of life that our lives are formed in Christ's life. And our hope is that arrow prayers will be added to your quiver. Any archer will tell you that the only way to hit the target is to let it fly. Now, while Psalm 51, the subject of our arrow prayer last week, is a classic arrow prayer for confession, Lord, forgive me, less practiced is the corporate version of that prayer, Lord, forgive us. And many of us wrestle with shouldering the collective ownership of other sins and participation in a more corporate confession. The question is, if I didn't actually commit those sins, why do I need to confess them? Is there legitimacy to the idea that sins committed by others or by institutions are my responsibility? Uh, is it important for me to confess corporate sins? Well, the answer is yes, and here's why. Corporate confession cleanses the soul by identifying and moving us away from that particular sin. And also, corporate confession builds solidarity with brothers and sisters in Christ who do have direct guilt with such sins, uh, as we are all members of the same body. This is important. And more importantly, taking responsibility for neighbors was the form of Christ's life. Jesus didn't die unto himself. His death was for the sake of others. When we identify ourselves with the sins of others, we die to ourselves and we die to that sin. In essence, corporate confession is a spiritual practice. It's, it's a means by which we draw ourselves closer to God and, and more completely become uh, a tool of the Holy Spirit's work in this world. And while our salvation in Christ is an individual decision, <clears throat> the Bible presents people of faith as part of a community, and our identity is embedded in that community. Now, in the 1990s, a Christian movement called Reconciliation Walk sparked waves of reaction throughout the world. The effort, concentrated in Europe, Turkey, and parts of the Middle East, offered an apology for the atrocities during the Crusades, which were armed pilgrimages between 1096 and 1271, you know, way back, that sought to reclaim uh, the, Holy, the Holy Land and by, by brute force. Reports emerged uh, related to Reconciliation Walk that as a result of this effort, barriers came down and relationships between Christians, Jews, and Muslims softened. And if you have a Muslim friend, you might very well hear them talk sometimes about the Crusades um, and the damage that they did toward Muslims during that time. 
Now, the movement raised questions among Christians. Should Christians today feel any burden for sins committed by our spiritual ancestors? Well, look at the scriptures indicates that the answer is yes. Now, we know that the identity of ancient Jews was anchored in their special role as covenant people of God, directly tied to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They shared this, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And throughout the Old Testament, prophets prayed corporate confessions of sin, which reflected the collective ownership of the sins of the people. And so instead of, Lord, forgive me, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the psalmist, and Ezra prayed, Lord, forgive us. Nehemiah, he linked the spiritual condition of Israel in his day to the sins and covenant breaking of his fathers before taking upon himself the burden of confessing this guilt and petitioning God to forgive and grant his grace. Jeremiah spoke of the lasting effects of the sins of we and our fathers and instructed the people to acknowledge their wickedness and that of their fathers. Most of the prophet's words in Ezekiel 20, uh, Ezekiel focused on the judgment that was Israel's due to sin and unfaithfulness, uh, the unfaithfulness of its ancestors. When Isaiah pronounced his woes while beholding the glory of the Lord noted in Isaiah 6, he was not only concerned about his own unclean lips, but also that he lived in the midst of a people of unclean lips. A psalmist, likewise, in leading the nation of Israel in a prayer for the blessing of the people, was concerned with their culpability for ancestral sin when he wrote Psalm 106. It says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Ezra, who was from the priestly family of Levi and, and was recognized by Jews and Gentiles alike as being a righteous and upright man, uh, when Jews began returning to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, he oversaw the initial rebuilding of the temple uh, and restored worship. But upon learning that the remnant that had remained in Jerusalem had joined in pagan worship and intermarried with pagan people living in the land, he prayed in confession for the sins of the people. Ezra prayed about our iniquity, our sin, our unfaithfulness. But wait, some may say, well, Ezra was a priest, and that's exactly what he was supposed to do, right? Intercede on behalf of his guilty fellow men. Well, that's exactly the point. Because praying this arrow prayer, Lord, forgive us, it puts us in the role of a priest. Something that the Apostle Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the whole church is now called to intercede for the guilt that is upon us corporately as well as individually. We're all priests. God's church is not freed from corporate guilt simply because of our individual salvation in Christ. Christ died for the corporate sins of the church uh, as well. And he promises us that if we confess our sins and he, he, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. So we confess our corporate guilt just as we confess our individual sins. In Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shared a pattern for prayer with his disciples. 
and in it, he used corporate pronouns throughout. He prayed, our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us. Later in the mid-17th century, this was reflected in one of the great creeds of the church that came out of the Reformation uh, called the Westminster Larger Catechism. And the creed asks questions and then answers them. And one question that is asked is, what do we pray for in the fifth petition? And the fifth petition, speaking of the Lord's Prayer, is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the response is, we pray for ourselves and others. And then it goes on to say this, acknowledging that we and all others are guilty, both of original and actual sin, and thereby both become debtors to the, to the justice of God, and that neither we nor any other creature can make the least satisfaction for that debt. We pray for ourselves and others that God of his free grace would, uh, through the obedience and satisfaction of Christ, apprehended and applied by faith, acquit us both from the guilt and punishment of sin, accept us in his beloved, continue his favor and grace to us, pardon our daily failings and fill us with peace and joy in giving us daily more and more assurance of forgiveness, emboldened to ask and encouraged to expect uh, when we have this testimony in ourselves that we from the heart forgive others their offenses. Now that is what the church does when it offers corporate confession for corporate sins, be they sins of the church or of uh, her members, be they sins of institutions that we as citizens are a part of now, such as civil government, uh, the companies that we work for, or our economic system, or institutions that our spiritual forebears were a part of long before us, corporate confessions. Now, the question of corporate culpability for the role of slavery and the role that it's played in our nation's history um, has been on my mind during our season of civil unrest. As our nation and the world struggles with a response to pervasive racism in the structures of society, uh, I've come to conclude that arrow prayers are the place to start. Our first response should be This arrow prayer, Lord, forgive us. And by praying this, we identify with the problem and take responsibility for the sin. When we learn that the predecessor of the New York Life Insurance Company, uh, which was initially the Nautilus Insurance Company, that it sold policies on the lives of enslaved persons from 1846 to 1848 and paid the claims of those who died to their owners, because they were just so much chattel. They were just things owned. When we hear of things like that, and when we realize that, I know that sometime in the past I had a New York Life Insurance policy, our prayer should be, Lord, forgive us. When we hear that Yale University is named after Elihu Yale, a former slave trader, or that Harvard and Princeton had presidents who owned enslaved people, we pray, Lord, forgive us. When we learn that while Jack Daniels didn't own slaves, but learned how to make whiskey from an enslaved person named Nathan Nearest Green, who was owned by a Lutheran minister, we pray, Lord, forgive us. When we hear that enslaved people built the original White House, as well as the U.S. Capitol building, we pray, Lord, forgive us. 
And now that we have acknowledged and allowed ourselves to be implicated by the sin, we can become an agent of change. We're in that position now, and the Holy Spirit can reveal how. Corporate confession requires recognizing our brokenness. It builds solidarity with the suffering and helps to restore the reputation of the church in the world. Now, another Old Testament prophet, along with Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Ezra, who practiced both individual and corporate confession is Daniel. And in Daniel, uh, we could not find a better mentor to learn how to pray. For nearly 60 years, Daniel served at the top rungs of a pagan government, serving three different kings without compromising his relationship with God. Daniel found favor in the eyes of King Darius and in his 80s was appointed one of three administrators over Babylon and was on track to become chief administrator. But having a Jew in such a high position uh, made the others, the other administrators jealous And so they tricked Darius to pass an unchangeable law, the law of the Medes and Persians, that made it illegal to pray to any god or man except Darius himself. And so they they played off of his ego, and he approved this law, made this law that was beyond himself in terms of canceling it, um, just just to please his ego without understanding how this would be used. Um, So this law came down, but Daniel, a man of courage, a man of faith, a man of prayer, kept praying to the true and living God anyway. And in Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, it says, Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. As a result, Daniel was marked for capital punishment and thrown into a den of lions for slaughter. However, God intervened, sending an angel to protect Daniel from harm while his accusers became the lion's dinner. We find Daniel's confession on behalf of his people after these events, and it's in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And it begins with Daniel realizing that the 70 years of captivity in Babylon are nearly complete. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And so Darius began his reign over Babylon, over the Babylonian kingdom when the, uh, when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon in 539 BC. And prior to this, uh, Daniel had been reading and pondering the scriptures, and in this case, the prophecy of Jeremiah, who had prophesied 66 years previously in 605 BC, which was the time of um, the northern kingdom being taken captive. That was the first captivity. In Jeremiah 25, verse 11, it says, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's the captivity. And so Daniel realizes that the 70 years is just about completed and that the time has come for Jerusalem to be restored. Because Daniel believes God's promises, he prays. He prays in earnest for his people, that God would forgive their sin and enable this restoration to take place. 
In Daniel 9, verse 3, it says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel turned, literally, he set his face to the Lord. This is a Hebrew idiom that implies a deliberate determination towards something. A a similar term is used to describe Jesus's deliberate journey to Jerusalem to offer his life for us. Luke 9, 51, it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And Daniel's prayer was no casual thing, but a firm heart's resolve to seek God for his people until an answer came. And he was resolute in his commitment to pray, to intervene, even plead for his people. Now, Daniel used physical means. It says in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes to draw his spirit into penitential prayer. Fasting humbles us before God. Sackcloth was a sign of mourning. And with ashes symbolized the repentance with which Daniel came to represent his people before the Lord. Daniel pleaded, reflecting the earnestness of his prayer. Daniel petitioned a heartfelt request for grace, poured out from a soul troubled by the plight of his people. And Daniel's prayer was deliberate yet humble, respectfully bringing his request to God, knowing that God owes him and his people nothing. Let's look at Daniel 9, 4 and following. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him uh, and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. And so after recognizing the great and awesome God, Daniel acknowledged their sin. Daniel's aware that the people of Israel don't deserve mercy under the covenant conditions. They deserved exactly what they got, which was removal from the land. And instead of the blessings of the covenant, they faced the curses of the covenant, which Daniel openly acknowledges. The people had broken God's commands and worshiped false gods. And so Daniel makes clear that he isn't trying to get mercy based on some loophole. He just flat out declares we've sinned. Nor does he hide behind the, well, we didn't know it was wrong defense. He acknowledges that we have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name. So God is not at fault. Uh, They killed the prophets he mercifully sent to warn them. Corporate confession of our sins, it must be open like this, complete, brutally honest, without equivocation, um, without naming extenuating circumstances or excuses. As a, and as a parent, if you're a parent today, um, have you ever confronted your child with a misdeed and waited for her or him to own up to it? And sometimes we'll hear a, a full admission, but often... Uh, It's more half-truths or lies and excuses. And as someone once um, put together a few Bible verses and said, a lie is an abomination to the Lord and an ever-present help in times of trouble. Well, this is something that we learn pretty early in life. And not until uh, the child is truly repentant will he or she fully confess But anything less is unacceptable to a parent intent on shaping their child's conscience and character. We're either developing conscience 
uh, and character or we we're developing manipulative little people. And, and so why should we expect God to be any less discerning with us? So Daniel placed himself squarely in the middle of his nation's sin. He doesn't say they sinned or 70 years ago some wicked people sinned. Instead, he says, well, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. And if we are to intercede as Daniel did, we must um, take in the sin. We must take the sin upon ourselves. And Daniel was a righteous man who lived without compromise his entire life, yet he prays, we have sinned. Daniel foreshadows Jesus' life and ministry 500 years later, taking on the sins of the world in order to save it. Isaiah 53.12 predicted this. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He took our place. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And then finally, the familiar passage from Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 through 8. It says, who Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is the form of Christ's life. And the Christian life is forming our lives in that life. Now, Daniel doesn't take sin into his body uh, to nullify it in the sense that Jesus did, and neither do we. Daniel was born in sin, part of broken humanity, which he acknowledged. But Daniel allowed himself to be burdened. Uh, He allowed this burden of sin to be placed upon him. Burdened by sin, he didn't commit to ask God to nullify it and restore his people Daniel, in his own person, fulfills for Israel the condition and promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14, which reads, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. How do you and I ask for mercy for a sinful nation of which we're citizens? How do we pray for healing for a church whose spirit has been tarnished by sin and hatred? How do we pray? Well, it's painfully, (laughs) personally. We learn this from Jesus, and we learn this from Daniel. In the next section of Daniel 9, verses 7 through 16, Daniel goes deeper. He, He contrasts God's righteousness and mercy with the shameful sin and rebellion of his people. So he takes the themes he opened up in the first six verses and just goes deeper with them. And three times in this passage, Daniel speaks of the disaster that has come upon Israel, the utter destruction of the nation, Jerusalem, and the scattering of the people, and yet they did not seek the the Lord's favor. And what the nation has failed to do, Daniel does for it. He is not a high priest. He's not a king. He's not an official representative of the nation. Yet, he takes on this intercession. And then finally, Daniel makes his plea. Beginning with Daniel 9, verse 17, it says, Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. 
For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. He's just speaking of the destroyed temple in Jerusalem. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For, our, for your sake, my God, uh, do not delay, because your city and your people who bear your name. Now, Daniel's petition is peppered with staccato arrow prayers. Lord, hear. Lord, look. Give ear. Open your eyes. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. Lord, for your sake, do not delay. And God answered his urgent, impassioned prayer. In the book of Ezra, it begins with a record of King Cyrus's decree. Cyrus was after Darius, and he made a decree that freed the Jews to return to the land. In Ezra 1, 2 through 4, here's what it says. It says, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And so God has been working in the king's heart. Verse 3, any of his people among you may go to Jerusalem in Judah and, and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And then amazingly in verse four, it says, and in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so this is, this goes beyond what Daniel was praying for. His prayer was for permission to go back to the land. Uh, But God does so much more. God sends Ezra to begin the rebuilding of the temple and the establishment of worship in the land again. Then Zerubbabel is there to provide military leadership and protection for the Jews. And then Nehemiah shows up to lead the rebuilding of the walls. May we reclaim this sense of corporate responsibility. In our context, where individuality reigns and we take pride in our independence, we need to embrace corporate confessions as a spiritual discipline, a means by which we love and serve God by loving and serving others. May we grasp corporate confessions as an individual responsibility and be faithful in intercession and faith that bridges to a better day. May we humble ourselves and stand in the gap and pray in solidarity with Christ's church. Corporate confessions reflect that we are part of the same body and express contrition for our failings as Christ's representatives in the world. And may we pray for our nation and humanity as a whole, asking God to redeem this age and bring the kingdom of God. May we move from Cain's come back to God, east of Eden in the land of Nod. Uh, Am I my brother's keeper? And instead respond, I am my brother's keeper. May we often let this arrow prayer fly. Lord, forgive us.